chapter 5. We're in verse 38. Um, I'm preaching on kingdom love. We've been seeing that Jesus comes in and he announces his kingdom through this Sermon on the Mount. And this is where Matthew records the sermon for us. We have to remember that we're preaching like, I think, eight sermons on this one sermon. Don't forget that this is a whole sermon and there's an overarching theme here that's being presented. So it's easy for us to get caught in the weeds and we can make these sayings a new kind of legalism if we're not careful. See, um, chapter 4 tells us that Jesus was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom to those around him, to the weak, the poor. Um, remember the audience of this, this sermon was most likely Jewish people who knew the law, right? In some sense, they knew the law and understood it, but it was primarily the people that were responding were the sick, the weak, the poor, the outcast, those that the religious elite of the day had told that they weren't good enough, that they weren't in the kingdom. And so Jesus is proclaiming this message. And these were those that were, as this message was being taught, that they were sitting, hanging on to every word that he spoke. They were the ones really engaged and paying attention. And most likely there were Pharisees and religious leaders standing in the background, um, just kind of taking it all in, wondering what was going on. And so we see that this is good news to be declared. This is not a new Ten Commandments. You can't view this as a a new law to keep under the new covenant because we're missing the point. See, this is a king coming in and saying, I am king. The king is here. This is my kingdom. This is what it looks like to be a citizen of my kingdom. This is who is welcome in my kingdom. This is the way kingdom citizens respond when certain things of life happen to them. This is the way they act because they are my children. So this message is good news. And so as Jesus began to declare this message, we first saw the Beatitudes, what we like to take and kind of pick out individual sayings as kind of proverbs for our life, and we're missing the point. Jesus is saying, these are the people that I welcome in my kingdom, the meek, the poor, the outcast, those that seek hunger and thirst after truth, after righteousness. These are the ones I welcome in my kingdom. Then we saw that this kingdom is not meant to just kept within. We're to be salt and light to spread the kingdom. To the age around us. We saw that Christ is not here to abolish the old law, but rather to fulfill it, which is very beautiful because if something was abolished, there was no need for that in the first place, but rather he fulfills it. See, the old law has always been pointing forward to the coming Messiah, to the King, and he's here now. And then he clarifies because he's about to redefine these common misconceptions of the day. And as Jason taught last week to catch us up to where we're at now, we saw these sayings, these, you have heard, but I say unto you, right? And I can see the Pharisees standing in the background and Jesus, you have heard from these Pharisees, from these religious leaders who are twisting the law to fit their own agenda. You've heard it from them, but I say, let me tell you the heart of the matter and the truth that's behind this. So we get to the last two sayings, which are verse 38 through 48. And as we get to these sayings, if if up to this point you have in your mind made this a new legalism and a new law to keep, what Jesus is about to say is going to obliterate that. He's going to call you to love your enemies. See, this kingdom love is not, in this age, we like to talk about love and toleration and this flippant kind of love that's kind of fluffy and you just kind of love people. But see, this love is real, and it has roots, and it is willing to sacrifice. See, we don't like to talk about this kind of love a lot. And as someone who's preaching uh, truth, it's, it's easy. You think, oh, we're talking about love. That's an easy one to preach. Not, not this kind of love. Not this love towards your enemies, towards those that hate you. See, the beauty of the kingdom, the more I study the kingdom, 
It's a whole new realm. See, what we like to do is we like to take God and we want this kind of balance between the law and grace. We're like, we should have some kind of weird balance. You know, you have some truth and some grace mixed in there. We want to find that perfect middle road. And what we say balance is, is however we are, because we're obviously always perfectly balanced and everyone else is off if they're not right in line with us. But the reality is the kingdom does not have some balance. It's a whole, it's a hundred percent truth and a hundred percent grace. It's a whole new road. And so when we talk about kingdom love, especially towards our enemies, this age offers us two extremes. And I'm going to point these out at the beginning. So as we go through the passage, you can see them. Um, You can see how it could be twisted to fit either of these extremes. The one extreme is utter pacifism. And it is this lack of activism. There's no action taken. And we just are able to be doormats and we are walked over and we don't do anything. We don't respond at all. The other option that this age offers us is we take these sayings and we completely ignore them or we excuse them or we laugh them off. And we say that, We respond with vengeance and with activism fueled by hate. So that's what this age offers us. And so maybe we need to find some weird balance in between where sometimes we react this way and sometimes this way. That's not the way this kingdom offers us. Uh, What this kingdom offers us is a whole new road. It's not pacifism. It's not activism fueled by hate. It's action and activism fueled by love. And so we don't just take it. We do respond, but we always respond in love. And that's what this kingdom offers us. As we go through these sayings, I promise you, they will drive you, if you're honest, to fear and despair because you will find evidences and and blind spots in your life where you're not living this out. But let me give you hope that let that drive you to ultimate security in the good and gracious king who gives us a good and gracious son in our behalf, which in turn makes us good and gracious sons and daughters. And that's what this kingdom that he's announcing is about. And so let's dive into the text and see what Jesus has to say about kingdom love. So Jesus is speaking in verse Matthew 5, verse 38. It says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile... Go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And so we have this kingdom retaliation is the first thing we're looking at. See, we have this comparison between the false kingdom versus the true kingdom, between false kingdom citizens and true kingdom citizens. See, false kingdom citizens worry more about their personal kingdom than they do God's kingdom. And so what the Pharisees had done here is they had taken this phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and they had twisted it to fit their own agenda and to gain power, to make it say what they wanted it to say. See, this original phrase was given to stop corruption in the current justice system because what would happen is those that were poor would be taken advantage of, and if they stole a loaf of bread, those that their accusers would demand their whole lifestyle to be taken, their whole life, their whole living, their expenses to be taken from them. And so this law was given to say, in the courts, do not take more than was taken from you. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We just, that vi- to curb the, the natural bent of violence that we see take place from the fall. But this was taken and this was twisted. To, to say that you can personally retaliate when you're done wrong to. Even in the Old Testament, we see many pictures of giving vengeance over to the Lord and allowing him to handle it. 
We also need to remember that Jesus is not giving specific um, commands of if you're actually literally slapped on the face, then you need to make sure you turn the other cheek. Because then what we do is we excuse it. Well, well, I was actually punched. It wasn't technically a slap, so I can actually punch back because Jesus didn't say that I couldn't do that. And we excuse them so we don't have to take them seriously. But what he's given is he's giving illustrations of how a kingdom citizen would respond or might respond in these situations. And he's just given us some examples. Don't resist. If anyone slaps you, turn the other. If someone sues you for your tunic. I mean, he might have literally knew people in this audience that this had happened to. Right? So, so he's given us these illustrations or these examples. And we reason our way out of it. What is the reason for our lack of love and our retaliation and fear? And you're going to see this theme run through, but I believe firmly that it is because of our fear. What keeps us from responding in love? It is our fear, specifically our fear of loss of something. Maybe our fear of loss of power and control, right? For someone to sue us, we want to fight back. We don't want to be viewed. Maybe it's our fear of losing our reputation as someone who doesn't get walked all over. I, I don't, you don't take advantage of me. Maybe it's our, our fear of our loss of our possessions, right? These things that we like to hold on so tightly to, especially in our culture. We, we thrive on materialism. And our fear of loss of these things, we, we, we hang on to them as if they were ever our own in the first place. Right? We hang on to them so tightly, and this forces us to be enslaved to fear, and we retaliate in anger, and we allow fear to drive us. So that's what we see in verse 38 through 42, and then we look at verse 43. We're going to see true kingdom love. It says in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? The most hated people in this society? They, even they love those that love them. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles those that they look down upon, do not even the Gentiles do the same? So we see this call to um, love your enemy. See, the command that he said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, we don't even find that. This was a command that they had heard, that they had twisted, that they inferred that because you love your neighbor, well, clearly you should hate your enemy, right? We, we infer that. And so again, these pharisaical teachers were taking this law and twisting it again to fit their agenda, to fit their own personal kingdom. And so Jesus comes in and obliterates this. And, and again, he's not giving you a theology of who your enemy is. He, he's not trying to tell you, if you're asking that question right now, we're asking the wrong question. Because Jesus knew that even people would take the command to love your neighbor and try to twist it, right? That happened to him. Well, well, well who is my neighbor? Like, who can I get away with not loving? I mean, technically, they don't live right beside me, and they're kind of annoying, so they're not really my neighbor. Um, so Jesus knew that even that would happen, so he comes in, and now he says, um, love your enemy. And if we're doing the same thing, saying, well, well, who technically is my enemy? Like, I have this coworker, and he's really annoying, and I don't like him, but he's not like ISIS, right? Like, he's not trying to, so he's technically not my enemy, so I really don't have to love him, right? Like, 
So again, Jesus is coming in and he's showing that the, the whole gamut, like your neighbor to your enemy, like you're called to love them. See, love of this age is a, a selective, selfish love, a exclusive love. If you're not in my camp, if I don't understand you and you don't make sense to me, I don't love you. But the love of the kingdom is a exclusive, a selfless love that says, who, regardless of who you are, I love you because I've been loved. Again, this is a theology of his kingdom, specifically the way we're called to love in his kingdom. It's not a pacifism. It's not an activism fueled by hate. It's activism fueled by love. See, this is active love. He says in verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Don't just take it, but love them and pray for them who persecute you. And then you have in verse 45, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. And if we're not careful, again, we make this a new law. I need to do this so I can then be a son of God or a daughter of God. But see what he's saying here, he calls us to this whole new way of living because when you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you, you are being like the son of God who loved his enemies and was active in that love, who on the cross when he was being persecuted to death, he cried, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is the kind of love we're called to. This kingdom love is different than anything this world has to offer you. This kingdom love is not vindictive, but it is restorative. It is not exclusive, but it is inclusive. It does not categorize people into a category, but it will always humanize people because there are people made in the very image of God. It does not discriminate or even like we like to hear all the time, tolerate. It actually invites the enemy in and welcomes them to their table and actively loves them well. This is crazy. Like these things that we're called to are insane. And what again keeps us from responding in love and actively loving our enemies, I would argue that it at its root is fear. We are enslaved to fear. Fear of losing, again, power and control. Maybe fear of losing our reputation. Or how about this? Fear of loss of comfort. Fear of two idols in our culture many times. Fear of security, loss of security, and loss of safety. And ultimately, fear of loss of life. Again, we hang on so tightly to these things because we think they are our own. And if we remember in Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? Everything is a gift to you. So we're called to these hard things, but I don't want to leave you just sitting there in despair. Because that's, that's easy. I, I get, there's not one of us in here that can't find hate in our heart towards somebody like ISIS, right? Like, let's, let's get real. And, and in our society, in our culture, this is, this, is who, this is who our enemy is many times. Even hate sometimes towards people that, that we know we should love. But I want to point out this verse 48. It says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It's interesting, interesting because he started these, you have heard but I say sayings with, uh, kind of bookends it with the beginning of it. It says in verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And he starts with kind of comparing our righteousness in our heart to that of the scribes and Pharisees. And then he ends it with kind of this, this comparison or this, you must be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. See, the Pharisees kept the law by twisting it to fit their own agendas. But true kingdom citizens keep the law from the heart as sons 
and daughters. It's easy for us to read this phrase, and I'm going to hang out here for a minute because I think it's important because we get hung up on certain things. Like, one, we get hung up on, you therefore must be perfect. And we're like, whoa, 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 you know, we don't believe in a works-based righteousness. We believe in our righteousness coming from the Son of God. So, so how, how, do we, how do we rationalize that? Well, first of all, I, I have to say that this is, a, in the Greek, it's a future indicative, meaning, and I'm not that smart. I read, read other people that tell me that, that I trust. Uh, but in, in the Greek, it would be better understood as you therefore must be, will be, or shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. A future indicative that it will happen in the future sometime. And then we also have to understand that in our mindset, we don't recognize many times what the original audience would have understood. Remember, these are Jews who I think it would be unfair to say they never related to God as Father. They did. But he was kind of this distant cosmic creator who kind of set things in motion, was not really intimately involved, and just kind of stayed back and let things kind of run. And, and sometimes, you know, through rituals and through sacrifices, we could kind of call on him when we needed him to win a victory for us. But he wasn't a God that really cared. See, they had heard many times, be ye holy, for I am holy. And that was a great command. Be ye wholesome, be perfect, be mature, be perfect, complete. And understand that's what that word perfect entails. They understood they were to be like God, but they had failed time and time again because in their pursuit of being like God, they wanted to be God. They wanted to define right and wrong all the way back to the garden. But Jesus comes in and what they would have heard is you therefore must be, will be perfect as your father is perfect. See, the difference between what they had heard under the old covenant and the old was, was that they needed to be holy like God was holy. But here they hear that this, this God, this creator of the universe is now intimately involved as a father in the affairs of men. He's no longer distant. See, this is a father who, who gets down on the floor and plays with his children. This is a father who goes in the backyard just because his son wants to go play catch. This is a father who will get down and play princess with his daughter. This is a father who, as the scriptures tell us, when we speak, he bends down his ear to hear our cry. See, this is simply saying, be like your daddy. As if we believe that he intimately is our father, we naturally, we're intimately involved in him, we will pick up the characteristics of a kingdom citizen because he is the king and he is our father. Any of you that have children that you're intimately involved with, you know that they pick up what you do for good or bad, right? They pick up what you do. My son, he, he, he likes, he's three years old and he will copy the things that we do. Sometimes that's not good and we're like embarrassed, like, I don't know where you got that from. Um, and we do, but... But, but, like, when I got this tattoo a few months back, he was, like, the next, like, week or so, he was in the closet. He had stolen a permanent marker from my desk that he knows he's not supposed to mess with. And he was just drawing on his hand to try to imitate what, what I had done, right? And so, and I pray that something as superficial as a tattoo, like, that doesn't, I, I'm not worried about him imitating. Like, that doesn't do anything for me. But, but to see him hopefully imitate things that actually have value and purpose, things loving others well, I, I pray that he sees those things and imitates them. But ultimately, you know what I point him to? His good, good father, who there is nothing in him that can be imitated that is not right and that is not righteous. I ask him all the time, Caden, who's your real daddy? And he says, God, and I hope that that sticks because if you don't believe that God is your father, you will not live this out. 
by the power of the Spirit that he's made us sons and daughters. See, citizenship in this kingdom, it's hard for us to understand. We hear that language because it's not like any citizenship of this age, right? We were not natural-born citizens into this kingdom. That only belongs to Jesus. And so the only way of this age to gain citizenship, citizenship in this kingdom is through a long, drawn-out application process, right? In the kingdoms of this age. That's how we do it. But, but this kingdom's not. It's not checking the right boxes and making sure that you don't answer the question wrong so you're accepted into this kingdom. It's not taking a test, making sure that you can get all the answers right. It's not sitting through an interview process and having someone important interview you and make sure that you actually bring enough value to this kingdom. It is also not being able to pass a background check and making sure that your past is not too tainted and that you're clean enough and you won't cause too many problems and it won't be too messy to allow you into this kingdom. See, this citizenship is not like any of this age. It is not you pursuing pursuing citizenship in this kingdom. It is the king of this kingdom leaving his throne and pursuing you to adopt you as his sons and his daughters. See, there is no one who is a citizen of this kingdom that is not also family. This kingdom is made up of sons and daughters of God, brothers and sisters of Jesus. It is this king sending his only son, the only rightful heir, Outside his castle, outside his comfort and his security, outside the city gates, to enemy territory, to seek you and to find you, to live out the perfect kingdom citizen life, but in his death, he becomes the enemy. So then he can take your place and you become a child of God. You receive the inheritance due him. And the beauty of this is the story doesn't stop there. He calls you into his kingdom. He rolls out the red carpet, kills the fatted calf, invites you in, cleans you up, and then says, I want you to go back out. And I want you to tell the world about this good king who loved you when you did not deserve it, when you were the enemy, when you were a child of wrath. He says, I trust the murderer with my good news. The Apostle Paul, he trusted with his good news. I trust the adulterer, the woman at the well with my good news. I was reading that story the other day, and I'm like, why would you pick this woman who's had five husbands, is living with her, uh, someone who's not even her husband now, and you're going to choose her to go tell your kingdom and go tell your story? What? He says, I trust the prostitute with my good news. I trust the outsider, the foreigner, the stranger with my good news. I trust the poor, the meek, the oppressed with my good news. Because the good news is that every single one of these is welcome inside my kingdom. What better evidence, what better testimony, what better witness to share than that we were once his enemy and now we sit at his table as an accepted, adopted son and daughter. See, these Jewish people, they had only known slavery. But Jesus comes on the scene and he brings a kingdom of freedom. They had only known exile and war. And Jesus comes in and he brings a place of shalom and a kingdom of peace. They had only known rituals and insufficient sacrifices. And Jesus brings a kingdom of grace upon grace upon grace. They had known heavy burdens. And Jesus brings a kingdom of rest. They had only known a distant, uninvolved God. But Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. 
God incarnate in the flesh here involved. So we see this familial language that you shouldn't miss. And then we talk about this perfection, this you therefore must be perfect. One, understand it as completeness or you must be whole or mature. How did Jesus, even Jesus himself, become perfect? See, he is the fulfiller of perfect love. He suffered and sacrificed on our behalf and died that we might be brought into his kingdom. All these sayings that we've been going through and that Jason went through last week, see, we did all those things towards him. We, we did not only justify our anger in our heart towards him, we actually put him on the cross and murdered him. We did not only justify our lusting after other gods, we actually cheated on him and became the whore and the prostitute. We have broken constantly the oaths and the covenants that we have entered into with him, yet he still loved us. We were his ultimate enemy. We were not just pacifistic sitting on the sideline. We were his enemy fighting his rule and fighting his reign, and he loved us. We did not just sue him for his coat. We stripped him and forced it off of him, stripping him naked. And he still gives us a robe of righteousness, refusing to leave us unclothed. We betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. And he washed our feet. He invited us in and said, welcome home, my son and daughter. This love, only this love of Jesus can free us from fear to love others well. Hebrews chapter 2, it should be on the screen. Hebrews chapter 2 In verse 8, we're going to read about this perfected, this love perfected through suffering. It says, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So right now in this already not yet age, like, is everything in subjection to him? Yes and no, right? It's this already not yet language. Verse 9, but we see him. Who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, this creator, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Even the sacrifice of Jesus was made complete or whole or perfect through his suffering, becoming like us in our flesh and blood. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call us brothers. We all have one source. We're brothers and sisters. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, Listen to this, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Remember, what keeps us from loving well is our fears, our fear. And we're enslaved to that fear, but Jesus walked right into death and looked it in the face and walked right through it. See, Jesus knew that death could not defeat him. Jesus knew that the resurrection was in store and that suffering is real and that if you love your enemies, it will lead and most likely will lead to suffering and to death. 
but that those those things are real, so is the resurrection. So is the hope that we have. See, this kingdom love casts out fear. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 verse 15 says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So when this love is perfected in us, all fear that has to do with punishment, that has to do, if you read this and there's fear of coming punishment, you've not believed and you're not abiding in God, believe that he is your father, trust in the good news of this kingdom. Perfect love casts out fear. It says, whoever fears has not been perfected in love. If there is fear in our heart, I don't ask you to conjure it up and just drive it out, right? We have to fall in love with our Father. Cry to Him. Repent of that fear. Admit that it is wrong and drive yourself to the gospel. Let God shower you with His goodness. See, we look back to the cross, seeing the love that God has for us. And we look ahead to the resurrection, knowing what is in store, and we can stand with Paul in close with Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss. Remember our fear of loss? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. But listen to this. And count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness, excuse me, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So he says, I want to know him. I want to share in his sufferings. I want to become like him in his death because I know what awaits is resurrection. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. See, Paul knew that this perfection that was awaiting him in the resurrection had not yet come, but because he knew that it would come, he could radically love others. He could radically radically pursue this kingdom, pursue these sayings, pursue citizenship in the kingdom of God. Yes, by loving our enemies, we enter into his suffering, we enter into his death, but we enter into his resurrection. See, I want you to get this, and I want me to get this. Jesus did not taste death so you could avoid it. He tasted death so through him you would defeat it. See, there's a difference. We spend our lives trying to run from death and scared of death and cowering in fear. When God has taken the shackles off and he's loved us well. And that's why we pray, God, we believe, but help our unbelief. Do we really believe this? In this already not yet age, the bad things that happen, the pain, the suffering, 
We mourn, but we know it gets better. And the good things that happen, we celebrate and we rejoice, but we know it gets better. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that this kingdom love goes on for eternity. It never ends. See, faith will become sight and hope will become reality, but this kingdom love will only become more and more perfect. See, one day we will see him face to face and we will know him as we're now known, which is fully and complete. And when we see him and we see his beauty and his glory, we will be so captured by his goodness that all these other gods that call out to us, calling for us to follow them and our eyes are darting constantly around us, those will fall away and be revealed for false gods that don't see, hear, or have any value. When you see him, you will never again doubt that he is your father, and you will never again doubt that he is good. No more rebellion. All that will be cast outside the city gates, and for love of his children and for love of his bride, all evil will be gone for eternity. This love is the kingdom come. This isn't just for the sweet by and by. And one day, this is a love that comes now, that his will would be done here now as it is in heaven, that his kingdom would come, not a shallow love, but a love that suffers wrong, bears reproach, hopes in all things, and believes in all things. To close, our prayer for Summit Crossing Limestone is that we would be so encaptured in this goodness that we would see those pictures come. Maybe it's in your own heart where sin is rooted out, Maybe bitterness towards a family member. Maybe bitterness towards your spouse. Maybe something that you are harboring within that you refuse to let go. We pray for God to root that out and for love to flow through. Maybe it's in our marriages, in our families, in our missional communities. And ultimately, we want to see this kingdom come in Limestone County. I mean, we want to see it break forth where people know of the glory of God. And we could care less about the name of Summit Crossing. We care about the name of Jesus. And that's the name that we want to be made famous. And again, we work in light of the resurrection, knowing that one day, every single square inch of this planet will be covered with the glory of God, like the waters cover the sea. That will be the kingdom come in its fullness. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that you've, that you've come that you are the king and that you are good and that you are right, that your reign and rule is beautiful. God, we thank you that we're not just hired hands, that we do not earn our pay in this kingdom, but rather we are sons and we are daughters. Jesus himself is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Thank you, God. Thank you for your blood that was, that was spilled, that was shed. We thank you for your body that was broken. The sacrifice that you paid, you took our place that we might become sons and daughters. God, we love you. We thank you that you love us, that you loved us first, that you pursue us in our brokenness, our pain, our apathy, and you bring us into your kingdom. We love you, Father. Amen. Here at Summit Crossing, we take uh, communion every week. This is for those that are...